open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. We did finish Acts 2 last Sunday. And as we come into chapter 3, we see Luke turn to the next issue on the horizon. The first issue was the ascension, Jesus going back to heaven. That was dealt with in chapter 1. And then immediately after Christ ascended, they had to deal with the problem of the vacancy in the 12 apostles. You have to have 12 to found the new Israel, just as there were 12 tribes in the original Israel. Once they have 12 apostles, they're ready for the Spirit. The Spirit comes. The church has its birthday on Pentecost, which is coming up here in just a couple of weeks. We hear the account of Pentecost, how the Spirit came, and then how the church responded in Luke's summaries and Peter's sermon. Now finally, we have a church. It has 12 apostles. It's ready to go. What about the legacy institutions, if you will, of the temple? God used to meet with people in the temple. Now the church claims to be the new way for God to meet with his people. So Luke turns his attention to the temple, and in fact, the temple remains a fairly prominent theme up through chapter 7 as Luke discusses what do we do about this claim that God now meets with people in the church. So listen to the word of God, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, fill us with wonder and amazement at the powerful name of Jesus by which this man was healed, by which the temple boundaries were breached, and formerly excluded people brought into the presence of God. Bring us into your presence. Help us to bring others into your presence. We thank you that the temple boundaries are gone, the old temple boundaries are gone, and that Christ is the new temple, and that in his name we can come into your presence. Father, help us to pay attention to what your word has to say to us. Open my mouth and help me to speak boldly your word as I ought to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the commentators tell us that there are 14 miracles in the book of Acts. 
We know that Luke has already shown that he likes uh, key numbers. This is the first of those 14 or 2 times 7 miracles. This miracle, of course, is strongly reminiscent of many of the gospel miracles in which Jesus would heal somebody. But the emphasis here is very marked. So marked that, in fact, when I read the commentators and saw them pointing it out, I said, how did I not notice this? And in fact, most of the commentators don't notice it either. But how many times are we told that the man is lame? Just one time. How many times in ten verses does Luke say the word temple? Six times. The location of this miracle is what's so important. We know that Jesus heals. That's important. That's good. But Luke is showing us this miracle that took place at a certain location at the temple gate because he's interested in the question of what the church and the temple, how the two are going to interact. And the answer is that the church is going to breach and then swallow up the temple. The church has become the place where the name of Christ is present in power in a way vastly superior to the way in which it was present in the old temple. Luke deliberately makes this first miracle in Acts about a lame man being healed by the name of Jesus and being brought into the temple to praise God. So where is this? Well, Peter and John went up to the temple. As one commentator noticed, the summary at the, in the last chapter ended, Luke says, that they were daily in the temple praising God, verse 46, and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Well, here at chapter 3, in the beginning, he mentions apostles going to the temple at the hour of prayer. He's deliberately tying this episode back to the previous episode. So where is it? Well, it's at the temple. And what's the issue? Well, there's a certain lame man there at the gate. Peter and John going to the temple, meet a lame man at the temple. Which side of the gate is he on? He's on the outside, as Luke makes abundantly clear. Now, the commentators, again, tie themselves in knots. There's no prohibition in the Old Testament on a lame man, a lame layman, entering the temple. A lame priest is not allowed to serve. No lame priest. But if you're a lay person, then perhaps you can go into the temple. At least there's no prohibition on it. And Luke doesn't say specifically that the man is not allowed to go in. But he does make a big deal out of the fact that the man doesn't go in. He's laid daily at the beautiful gate of the temple. On the outside, not on the inside. Now, maybe this man is just thinking of traffic patterns. There's a lot of people going in. There's a lot of potential donors. And so he sits immediately outside this gate. But Luke is thinking of something more than that. So who? Well, Peter and John. 
The chapter is a little bit strange because Peter does all the talking. John doesn't say anything. And yet, Luke is very consistent in this. Peter and John, or Paul and Silas, or other ministry teams appear regularly throughout Acts. In the last chapter, it was all 12 apostles. Even though Peter is the one who spoke, all 12 were present. Here, Peter speaks, but Peter and John are there together. In fact, the only person in the entire book of Acts who does solo ministry is Stephen. And he kind of had to do it because the Spirit of God caught him up and dropped him in the desert. And he was there by himself, so he did solo ministry. But other than that, ministry in Acts is team ministry. What is Luke telling us? Well, woe to the church that has a pastor and no elders. Woe to the missionary who is off all by himself in some foreign land with nobody in charge, nobody overseeing him, nobody working with him. He just, whatever. Woe to the pastor who's alone in his hotel room late at night. Woe to this ministry that in an ongoing way doesn't involve and endorse this principle of team ministry. John didn't have to speak. It's okay to be the silent partner. But he didn't need to be there. And that's why Luke repeatedly says, Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. To remind you, maybe John isn't saying anything, but he's still there. He's part of this healing of the lame man. And then the man is lame. He's the other character. Beggar lame from his mother's womb. Victorian novelists love to give us the backstory of these people. The Bible doesn't give us their backstory because it's interested in Jesus. How the lives of these people intersect with Christ. So Peter and John encounter this man and they stop and look at him. And somehow, Peter is sensing, wait a second, we can do something about this guy. So the man thinks they're going to give him silver and gold, and Peter explicitly says, get that thought out of your mind, silver and gold, have I none? Stand up and walk. And the man does. Supposedly sometime in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas was in Rome for some something or other, and the Pope took him down to the treasury at the Vatican, and opened the door and showed him all the wealth that the Vatican had accumulated. He said, what do you think of this? Peter can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. Thomas said, nor can he say, stand up and walk. And there is a point here, a lesson here for the church. What are we about? Are we about silver and gold? Or are we about the power to heal? This miracle is not about itself. It's called a sign in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, the council saying, What shall we do to these men? Indeed, a notable sign has been done through them. And then chapter 4, verse 22. The man was over 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had been performed, the narrator says. It's a sign. 
That is, this miracle points to something beyond itself. What is it a sign of? What does this miracle signify? Well, first of all, it signifies that Jesus has power to heal. And that the temple doesn't. This man had been outside that gate for years. We'll talk about that. But it was only the name of Jesus that could come and heal him. So this sign signifies that the church's primary mission is to bring Jesus and his power to people and their problems. That's what the sign tells us. The church's mission is to bring Jesus and his power to people and their problems. Peter and John could have ignored the man and said, well, we're here to pray. Let's do that. That's valuable. That's important. And so it is. But they had the power of Christ and they used it. The healing was not just a good deed. It was a sign of Christ's love and grace for his people. But the old Levitical system can't heal this man. In fact, that it excludes this man from the temple. The power of Christ is such that it can heal. And therefore, in terms of Luke's project to show us the certainty of what we've been taught, the certainty of the coming of the kingdom, we say, Jesus' name is so powerful that he can heal this man, therefore his kingdom is certain. The Christ who can do this is the Christ who will reign. Well, how can we be certain of what we've been taught? Well, because Jesus healed this man. We can be certain that his kingdom is coming. The power of Jesus is greater than the power of money. The gift of Jesus is greater than the gift of money. That's what the sign signifies to us. So why did Peter and John do this? Well, because in the first instance, the corrupt temple was excluding this man. He was on the outside every day for years, not on the inside, unable to get up and cross that boundary and come into the presence of God within the temple. Kept out. Now again, maybe not deliberately on the part of the temple leadership, but... Even if it wasn't deliberate, it's just as bad in one sense because there's no place for this fellow in the presence of God. Maybe he's excluded by a policy. Maybe he just doesn't want to go in because there's nothing in there for him. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Whether it's his disability keeping him out because of bad leaders or it's his disability keeping him out because... The presence of God is not anything that will do anything for me. He's excluded either way. But the church and the temple, its predecessor, were to be places that welcome people into God's presence. The temple is where God lives. The church is where God lives. Bring people in and get them into the presence of God. But this man is excluded. And as soon as we make church about something else other than coming into God's presence, then we too are excluding people from the presence of God. It could be excluding the disabled 
as in this fellow, he was unable to walk, so he couldn't come into God's presence for one reason or another. But it could also be about any other kind of exclusion. right? If we're focused on something besides coming into God's presence, then if people come to this church to meet with God, we're excluding them from that. We could be so focused on architectural splendor. That's the church with the beautiful doors, right? That's where this man was, the beautiful gate. Well, that's great. This temple has magnificent architecture, but I can't meet God here. We could become the church that's focused on silver and gold. Oh, we have the best balance sheet of any church in Campbell County. But again, if we're not bringing people into God's presence, how does that matter? church that's loaded with silver and gold, which of course the temple was, was magnificent, decorated with all kinds of very expensive gold and silver. But it couldn't bring this man into God's presence. Even if the church is so focused on caring for the poor and sick that we no longer bring people into God's presence. If we're so focused on being right, or on having everything just so, Right, a church that's more, more focused on keeping coffee off the carpet than it is on leading people into God's presence. Or keeping children quiet. Or, right, the opposite. Keeping those older adults who can't hear out because they don't like our children. Or whatever thing the church gets stuck on besides going into God's presence makes it like this corrupt temple. Ultimately, the biggest way we keep people out of God's presence is just by failing to worship ourselves. I'm here, but in my heart I'm not coming into God's presence and worshiping Him. My mind is a million miles away. The church is the place of meeting with God. But if we replace worship with politics, economics, do-goodery, Building or institutional maintenance. How many churches have you been in where that has become the theme? Sometimes it's the building. Sometimes it's the institution. Sometimes it's both. Or just socializing. Well, I'm here and my friends are here and this is a lot of fun. Then we are like that corrupt temple that excludes people from the presence of God because we're no longer about coming into God's presence and worshiping Him. We're all still outside the gate collecting nickels. Just like this poor lame man. Don't do that. The corrupt temple excludes. The true temple, the church, includes. Brings this man into the presence of God. The corrupt temple couldn't heal. He had been there for years. Did the temple do anything for his disability? Well, gave enough money to live. But beyond that, the temple was no help. There was a church in Augusta, Georgia, still there, of course, where I did some pulpit supply, and I encouraged my grandparents to go because they lived there. And Grandpa told me I would never go to that church. I said, well, why not? Well, it's on a terrible street in a terrible neighborhood. If the power of God is not sufficient in that church to clean up its block, it's not sufficient for me to want to go there. 
Well, there's a lot of things we could say about that, but clearly Luke is saying something similar to that here. This is the temple. This is the home of God Almighty. And a lame beggar is allowed to sit on the doorstep for years and years and never see the slightest improvement. God's power apparently is asleep and not able to heal something even in its own neighborhood. What do we say to that? Well, we as the church today don't offer physical healing. We can't promise that. Some sectors of the church believe in physical healing and they attempt it at times, but their success rate is limited. As, of course, even the apostles through the book of Acts are able to physically heal at times, but that's not the staple of their ministry. That's not the biggest thing that they do. And various apostles get sick or even die throughout this book. Clearly, the church's main mission is not to go around and heal lame beggars. We're not a medical institution. Rather, what is the church's mission? Well, like Peter said, we offer something better than silver and gold, and we also offer something better than physical healing. We offer reconciliation with God. Spiritual healing. You can come into God's presence and be healed from your sin in this body. We may not have the gift of physical healing operative here, but we do have the gift of being joyful in disability. As a church, we're committed to healing attitudes, morals, hearts, and relationships through the power of the Holy Spirit. What's easier to heal? Physical disability or religious, spiritual, moral disability? The church doesn't always cure physical disability, but we do claim to have the one who can always cure moral, relational, religious disability. We won't cure your lameness necessarily, but we can cure your hatred. We can't necessarily heal your blindness, but we can cast out worry. We may not be able to take away diabetes or cancer, but we can cure your porn problem or your greediness. Do we actually believe that? then in our congregation, we say, yes, there is healing for the damaged soul and the evil heart in this room. We will bring you into the presence of God and as you see His glory, you will be transformed to the next degree of glory. Away from your old, wicked self. The sin you couldn't stop will become the sin you can hardly remember the last time you did it. 
That's a greater promise. That's a tougher bill to fill than physical healing. But the end of the process is not, well, get used to that prosthetic foot. Get used to pleasure as a substitute for joy. Reconcile yourself to living with the moral disabilities of bitterness, racism, lust, and a hundred other sins. We don't say that here. It's not, we'll give you medication so you no longer feel the problem. No, there's a full cure available in the church. The end of the process is perfect health in the presence of us all, which is how Peter describes what happened to this man. Perfect health in the presence of you all. That's what we offer here in this church. You may not be physically disabled, but every one of us has a moral disability. We call it sin. And Jesus Christ, by the power of His name, heals that disability. The temple could no longer heal that. The name of Jesus was powerful to heal the disability, not just of lameness, but of sin. So what's the point? Well, that the name of Jesus trumps the name of Herod's temple. Herod's temple had a big name in first century Judaism. That was it. That was the place to go. The name of Jesus is mightier than this temple. So all the people were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Verse 10. Are you? Do you see the miracles of Christ and say, well, yeah, I expected that. I would be amazed if Peter and John had tried to heal him and then walked away and said, whoops, well, that didn't take. Sorry, everybody. But is the power of Christ old hat to us such that we hear, yeah, Jesus healed this man, and we say, shrug, neat, cool. You got anything more interesting? We should truly be filled with wonder and amazement at what Jesus has done and is doing in healing the moral disabilities in this room. So once the man is healed, what does he do? Verse 8, He leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them. Luke makes a point of that. That the man right away, once he's healed, can come into the presence of God. He could enter the temple. So we talked about that in our call to worship. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What's the right way to come into God's presence? It's by praising him. We talked about it in our confession of sin. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What are we doing? We're entering the holy of holies through the flesh of Christ. And now it's here again. The man entered the temple walking, leaping, praising God. The early church leapt right over temple walls, went right through temple gates into the presence of God because of what they were doing. They were continuing in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Because their life was saturated with that, the power of Christ overflowed to heal even physical disability to show that Jesus heals sin, that he overcomes moral and religious 
disability. So is our church soaked in those things? Are we full of the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers? And if we are, then we should manifest it by bringing those who were formerly excluded, including the disabled. The focus here is not primarily on his disability, but that includes them, into the presence of God with us. That's what the church did. As soon as they had the Spirit, as soon as they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and so on, they started bringing people into God's presence with them. We need a Savior, one whose name overpowers us, leads us into God's presence and heals us of our sin. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to understand the significance of your word to us. We thank you that you brought this lame man into the temple into which he formerly could not enter. We thank you that you brought us into your presence from which we were formerly excluded by our sin, our weakness, our defilement, our disability. It was worse than any physical disability because it was a moral religious disability. Father, thank you that you've healed us in Christ. That you've given us the ability to walk, to leap, and to praise you. That you've restored our capacity for worship through your Son. Bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. And help us to bring others into your presence as we enter your presence week by week. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.